Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm Mark Faulkner, Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor. I'm joined by Ted Culfin, our Red Wings beat reporter. He's here as well. And coming up, we'll hear from John Shannon, the former Hockey Night in Canada Executive Director and author of Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. But first, Ted, last night... The Red Wings rallied from that 4-1 deficit in the third period against the Sabres before losing 5-4 in a shootout. Still this morning, one week after Thanksgiving, on the first day of December, the Red Wings would be in the playoffs today in the first wildcard position with 27 points, one point ahead of the Penguins and Rangers. Now, no matter what happens going forward, Ted, and you ask Coach Derek Lalonde, how long before we should really take notice of the playoffs? And he said about 40 games, not after 22 games. Still, though, this has been a real extraordinary start for the Red Wings, hasn't it? It's been a really good one, Mark. I, I think you'd have to agree. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure. We we expected improvement. I don't know if to this level, though. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Mark, I mean, you look at those standings, it is very bunched up. I mean a couple wins or a couple losses either direction and you're either rising or slipping in the standings substantially it seems um but give credit to them they've played well they've won the game they've beaten the teams they're supposed to beat Mm -hmm. and they're accumulating points even like last night against buffalo i mean to make the three goal rally in the third period and earn a point that could be very valuable down the line who knows so that's it, been an, obviously the first quarter here. It's been a very nice start, but boy, let's see what happens in the month of December and January because just similar to last season, mm-hmm. the, the level of opponents is going to be much better here. They're facing some tough teams they haven't faced yet. And this is where the slide sort of began last season. And I, I wouldn't be overly shocked if we see a little bit of a dip here coming up in the near future. Ted, in the first intermission of the TNT broadcast last night, Steve Eiserman was asked by Rick Tockett about the increase in NHL rallies this year. The percentage of games that have comeback wins is at 46%, the highest percentage at this stage of the season in league history. Here's what Iserman had to say. I wouldn't say I have a real scientific answer, but I think our game, the league in general, is in a real transition. You've got a lot of teams playing, um, uh, you know, a lot of puck possession, a lot of motion. If you watch Toronto, uh, we just played them the other night. Uh, they might be one of the best teams at it, but in the offensive zone, they're very active. Uh, their D are very active in the offense. And the bigger end zones, teams are having trouble defending, figuring out a way of defending. It used to be 
you know, when we played, it was pretty simple. Three on three down low and wingers cover the points. Now with these Ds so active and so much more room, you're having a lot of switches. Uh, teams defend with overloads in the corners, which creates confusion when the offensive team breaks, uh, uh, breaks uh, the puck out of the corner. So the game is in transition, and I think the offensive side of coaching has is, is, is overtaken the defensive side, and now teams are going to, coaches are going to have to adjust to come up with better defensive techniques or systems to uh, to defend a little bit, and, and really now with 32 teams, um, you know there's there's times when uh, uh, the league there's tons of goaltending, there's just depth of it, and right now we're uh, goaltending throughout the league. I think we're all looking for uh, uh, strength in goaltending, whether it's through the draft, through free agency. Everybody is trying to improve, so it's a tough time. Uh, uh, to defend, and it's a tough time to be in goals with the game, the way the game is played. Steve Eiserman there, paraphrasing Ted. He said the league is in a transition period with the offensive side of coaching overtaking the defensive side of the game. Scoring is up again this year. Comebacks like last night are at an all-time high. The Wings, for example, rank second in the league with twenty percent of the offense coming from their defensemen joining the attack. Just as Eiserman alluded to, so. What's going on in the NHL, Ted? And does this kind of hockey favor the Red Wings, who have strong goaltending despite the last two games, and have improved special teams to go along with this 11, 6, and 5 record? Well, one strong goaltending is our goaltender. <laughs> uh, I still, I don't think the way Nadelkovic battled last night, but that start certainly wasn't those. He probably won at least two of those goals back. And let's see how Mr. Huso comes back from his latest. I mean, that game Monday night wasn't his best either. So a couple of points there. Yeah, the goaltending around the league, uh, we made mention of it before we started here. I mean, there are 32 teams, and well, you see it on a, almost on a daily, daily, uh, just watching it every night, Mark. The lack of quality goaltending around the league. I mean, there's some good ones, obviously, but... They're few and far between, and boy, oh boy. I mean, that position seems to be a little stretched out, particularly this season. I mean, most teams just do not have reliable, consistent goaltending. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, uh, I asked Derek Lalonde about this earlier in the week, just the the increase in scoring around the league, and made a good point. I mean, just the – the amount of skill and offensive skill and talent coming into the league these days and – they're able to beat anybody one-on-one, and yeah, no lead is safe. Offense is booming. There, it's up to the def- <laughs> somehow or other. It's up to the defensive-minded coaches to figure this out and put a curb to it a little bit. But yeah, just the skill level in the league. I tell you, Mark, I'm not sure. We it seems like we've said this the last couple of seasons, but. Sure. I don't know if we've ever seen this much offensive talent out there and they're just they're just flying out there. Ted, one other big story this week is the Dallas Stars extending the contract of Rupe Hints for eight years, sixty-seven million dollars, an average of eight point four five million. So how does that affect Dylan Larkin's contract negotiations? Hints like Larkin. He's one of the best two-way forwards in the league. Uh, they're both 26. Hints was making only $3 million this year, half as much as Larkin, who is wrapping up 
a five-year, $30 million contract. Larkin is an unrestricted free agent. Hintz was a restricted free agent. Hintz is a bigger center. He's 6'3", 215. He plays on Peter DeBoer's top line with Jason Robertson and Joe Pavelski. Larkin is 6'1", 198. Larkin has 25 points in 22 games. Hintz has 24 points in 22 games. Larkin and his new agent, Pat Brisson, are reportedly looking for a contract in the $9 million range. What will Iserman do? You know, back in 2016, he waited until 48 hours before the free agent market opened to sign Steven Stamkos, even though the Leafs and Sabres were reportedly offering $11 million. Iserman held firm on an offer of $8.5 million per season over eight years. So different circumstances, no state taxes in Florida, no state taxes in Dallas, for that matter, with the Hintz contract. But is this bothering Larkin? You just wrote at DetroitNews.com, Ted, that Larkin is playing defense at the highest level he probably has in his mm -hmm. career. But looking back, Stamco said it was stressful. It was hard. And he did stay. He had Victor Hedman there and Nikita Kucherov and all those players coming up through the minors. How do you think this contract might affect Larkin's contract? Well, I think we've talked about it before, Mark. Is this, some of these contracts popping up around the league, it's probably making it difficult, obviously. I mean, I think some people are somewhat surprised this wasn't worked out over the summer, but I'm sure there's a number that Steve Eisman wants to stick at, and they're not probably not approaching that number with some of these numbers, some of these contracts around the league. Mm -hmm. oh, Mark, I mean, for sure. I mean, I agree with you. I think nine would be a minimum at this point. I mean, would seeing what Mark, Matt Barzell got and Hins mm -hmm. got and a couple of other play, young players around the league. I mean, you have to think nine would be a bottom number. I'd probably 9.5 at this point. And especially like you alluded to, just the way he's playing both ends of the rink, he's doing a really nice job. I mean, evidently, the negotiations or lack thereof aren't really affecting him mentally. He's coming out playing strong hockey. At this point, sure, I wouldn't be shocked, I don't think, if this went into like the last few days or whatnot before free agency begins. Uh, mm. Maybe a game of chicken. At this point, I mean, I don't know. It, Hopefully it can get done soon for both sides, but I get the impression that, you know, there is a number that Steve Eisman would want to stay at, but I'll tell you what, I mean, if Rupe Hintz gets what, eight point, what'd you say? Eight point eight point four five Ted, and that ties him with Miro Haskinen. So down the road, yeah. does Larkin only make as much as Cider's next contract? I yeah. just don't see how you, I mean, anything less than nine million or maybe even 9.2 or three or whatnot it's almost like it'd have to be a home it'd be a hometown discount it would feel like i mean mm. i'm sure the players association is reminding him of that too it's like you know everybody, everybody has to get their best best possible contract just to help everybody out so i don't know it's interesting to watch i, I really do think 
this is probably taking obviously that's probably taking a little longer than everybody expected and it's probably becoming a little trickier to negotiate than everybody expected moving on it's time now for our interview segment of the podcast our guest is john shannon joining us now is john shannon the former executive director of hockey night in canada the co-host of bob mccallan's podcast featuring the biggest stories and biggest names in pro sports and the author of Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. John, welcome to the podcast. And what, what lessons did you learn in TV production when you would broadcast games here at Joe Lewis Arena? The press box, as you know, they forgot to build the press box in 1980, so they took out the last row of seats and put us up there in the upper bowl. What was it like producing games in Detroit, John? And what do you remember most about those Stanley Cup championship teams, especially the 1997-98 teams, which just celebrated 25 years this past weekend? Well, I, I will tell you right now that uh, if we brought Hockey Night in Canada to the Joe, mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Illich were so good to us. Mm. Uh, and, and, and personally and professionally, um, if, if we approached the club to say, listen, we need to do this, uh, and the staff would then go to Mr. Illich and he, and Mr. Illich would say, well, if it's for hockey night in Canada, we can do that. <laughs> and, and, and that to me was a, yeah. an ever, an everlasting memory of, of what Detroit what Detroit means to hockey night in so many ways, because it, it is such an anomaly when you think about it. And how many how many Detroiters watched uh, watched us every Saturday, and mm-hmm. and here we here we are. We were in Detroit doing Stanley Cups. Although I I must admit I was a little ticked off uh, because those teams were so good. Uh, <laughs> w- w- you know, we didn't get seven game series out of them. Uh, mm-hmm. We got we got sweeps, yes, uh, and, <laughs> and and there were and you know it, it, you know as much as we think about hockey about being about passion and about great games sometimes it's about revenue, and when the Red Wings would win their Stanley Cup final series in four games, um, it was nice to go home, but you'd look at the books and say, man, oh man, oh man, what, couldn't they at least like lose one game or two games <laughs> yeah. on their way to the Stanley Cup final? That's good. You know, John, in your book, you said you were truly blessed to be around Scotty Bowman's Montreal teams in the 70s. And you said that you were also uh, very fortunate to cover the dynasties in the 80s, the Islanders and the Oilers. Mm -hmm. And you put the wings really in the next category with Pittsburgh, Chicago, Los Angeles, maybe Colorado and Tampa Bay. When I say Detroit hockey, though, John, hockey town, uh, going back to Gordy Howe's four cups in six years in the 50s. Steve Eisenman's three cups in six years. Even Bob Probert, he was one of Don Cherry's favorites on Coach's Corner, which you helped start along with the satellite hot stove, hockey day in Canada. So many Canadian stories. What other Detroit stories, aside from that one with Mike Gillich and certainly understanding the importance of hockey night in Canada, what other names do you think of? Well, first of all, I don't think there are many of us left that actually worked at uh, the Olympia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the Joe and have worked at Little Caesars. So there's a there's a few of us that have transcended all three venues in Detroit. Uh, my, the first time I ever actually traveled to Detroit to work mm-hmm. uh, was was in that 19, I think it was 1978, uh, the Montreal Detroit playoff series. Bobby Crom 
and Ted Lindsay had done a marvelous job of resuscitating the franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were in a playoff series against Montreal. And I, and, and my boss was a, a guy named Ralph Mellonby at the time. And Ralph's from Essex. So he, he understands and, and went to Wayne state. So he understands Detroit and understands exactly what, what, what the city's all about. But my job was to, I was the, uh, the Jack of all trades. So I started the game. Um, and that, and th- in those days you had somebody on site to literally point to the referees to say, okay, you can drop the puck now. <laughs> um, and, uh, so my first thing uh, during the, during the actual show was to be in the penalty box at the Olympia, uh, and, and start and point to the referee to, to drop the puck mm-hmm. after the anthem. Um, that was also, if you recall, maybe you're too young to remember Mark, but, uh, that was also at a time when, the return of the Red Wings to the playoffs also meant the return of the octopus. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I, I was wearing my famous baby blue blazer okay. uh, that, that, that Saturday afternoon. And by the time I got out of the penalty box, the, or the octopi that had been thrown on the ice, <laughs> I was my, my baby blue uh, jacket was, had a tinge of red all over the shoulders. There were so many octopi on the ice that day. Uh, and I, I can never forget that. That was the series. They didn't win any games in the series, but but the fact that you saw the the old building sold sure. out and the passion for the for Red Wing hockey, you knew there was something special uh, in Detroit. John, what do you make of the uh, Red Wings now? They're off to their best start in twelve years with Derek Lalonde, Dylan Larkin, Andrew Kopp, David Perron, Ben Sherratt, six foot eight Elmer Soderblom, Billy Huso, a better power play, a more aggressive penalty killing unit. They've missed the playoffs here for six straight years, and they really don't like talking about the playoffs one game at a time, right? But can they can they keep this up, John, in a pretty tough Atlantic division? It's early, Mark. Yeah, it, it, it's really early. Uh, when you think how successful the Boston Bruins have already been, when you look at the roller coaster the Maple Leafs are on, mm-hmm. um, you know Detroit and Buffalo were both supposed to be better. Uh, so was Ottawa, but Ottawa's kind of hit a bit of a roadblock. Um, you know, Steve Eiserman um, made a huge imprint as a player for those years. Uh, was very patient in winning his first Stanley Cup as a player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then put those put those great Tampa teams together t- to um, to celebrate what what went on in Tampa, even though he wasn't there for the two Stanley Cups. So much of what has gone on in Tampa is 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 Eiserman hockey. And you can see that building. You can see his very, very uh, methodical way of, of building a hockey club and mm-hmm. and drafting and the guys like Cider uh, contributing. And then knowing when to go to the free agent market. And, and that's exactly what Steve has done. It, it's strictly a timing thing. The Huso deal, the cop deal. I'm a huge cop fan. I think Andrew mm-hmm. Cop is a, I know he's a Michigander and I know that he, uh, he played for the Wolverines, but this is a guy that uh, he's a winner and he, and he's going to make a difference. This is a team that certainly can make the playoffs, even though I'm not really supposed to talk about it in Detroit. Um, and 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 it is great to see uh, Detroit hockey fans get back to the new arena downtown and and enjoy what uh, the Winged Wheel has ever has always done for their hockey fans over these years and years and years of success. John, also in your book, you talk about some of your favorite play-by-play announcers, your friends, Bob Cole and Dan Kelly. Dan Kelly, by the way, my dad gave Dan Kelly his first job at Seajet in Smith Falls. I've talked to his son, John, 
about this on an earlier podcast. So what did Bob Cole and Dan Kelly have in common, John? And although you probably don't get a chance to hear Mickey Redmond and Ken Daniels, you've seen their progress from Hockey Night in Canada. They're extremely popular here, especially Mickey and his love of the game. Well, I, I was, listen, it, both Mick and Ken are great friends of mine. Uh, I was proud enough to work with Mickey at Hockey Night in Canada in the early 80s. I was proud enough to bring Ken Daniels into the Hockey Night fold on so many different ways and gave Ken a chance to be a play-by-play guy mm-hmm. at Hockey Night. Um, and uh, to this day, we we remain in, 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 in contact. And yes, every once in a while when they are doing games for the Red Wings, uh, they might get a text from me with a little bit of a critique. <laughs> so, um, uh, but, but to go back to your original question, Mark, yes, uh, both Dan and Bob uh, understood the theatrics of sports. They understood that hockey in so many ways as a broadcaster is a game of anticipation and that they, those two, had a great ability when the puck was at center ice Mm-hmm. to be able to tell me that something important is going to happen in the next six seconds. And then you had to be on the edge of your seat. And whether it was Dan Kelly's you know, cadence sure. or Bob Cole's volume, both of them could get me on the edge of my seat. And uh, and I, I marveled at their ability to tell me something important is going to happen you better be prepared as a fan to enjoy the next little while. And that that's what both of them had so much. And the, here, here's here's really, Mark, the, the biggest sure. thing of all of it is yeah. they loved the game. They had a passion for the game. It wasn't just on the air. They, were, they had passion for the game 24-7. Hmm. Uh, and, and their knowledge that, uh, that was almost as, as big as their passion really came through every time they were behind the microphone. You'll appreciate this, John. John Kelly said maybe the greatest call that his dad perhaps called was back in the Canada Cup with Lemieux and Gretzky. And you could hear his voice, the theatrics, the love of the game at the other end of the ice. And Larry Murphy jokes that he was also in on that two-on-one or three-on-two, but he was never getting the puck. It went from Gretzky to Lemieux. And John Kelly, I played that uh, that goal for John as we were recording a podcast. He said that might have been his dad's greatest call ever. It certainly makes sense with what you just said, too. So. Well, it, it, the 87 call is, uh, is iconic. Certainly in our country, it's iconic. Uh, but so is 1970. Uh, so is Bobby Orr's great goal in overtime against the St. Louis blues. Uh, and, and what it, what it put into, into play for me was Dan Kelly was the voice of the blues. Uh, but he had been hired on a national basis to do that game for CBS. Um, and he called that goal as exciting for the Bruins and Bobby Orr Hmm. as he, as he did anything he did with the blues. And that told you of his passion to be a great broadcaster not just to be the great St. Louis Blues broadcaster. That, to me, uh, those two goals, the Orr goal in 1970 okay. uh, and, and, the, and the, goal from, the goal from the Canada Cup in 87, I think are right at the top of the list. And John, finally, have you thought about making the Hockey Hall of Fame? You mentioned one of your contemporaries earlier, Ralph Mellonby, who was raised in Essex. I was the sports editor at the Windsor Star for 22 years. Ralph's dad was an editor at the Star, and you mentioned Ralph went to Wayne State. He worked at Mm -hmm. CKLW. He was the executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada for 19 years, five Emmys. 
what would it mean for someone like yourself in your book? You talk about growing up in British Columbia. You've been a champion of the Canadian teams out West. You've pioneered some changes in TV production. You've had the support of your parents who said, you know, have an opinion, your family, you talked about your wife and two children, they've supported you. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? But what would the Hockey Hall of Fame mean to John Shannon? Well, first of all, Ralph Mellenby deserves to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame as a builder. Okay. Um, he is, um, you know, the, the, the remnants of what Ralph created still exist on Saturday nights. Uh, the pride, um, the passion, the loyalty, uh, the tradition of hockey died in Canada is something that Ralph instilled in us all. Okay. Uh, there's no question in my mind that Ralph Mellenby, uh, who passed away last year, um, sh should have been inducted while he was alive and and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to be inducted as a builder. I'm not confident that that will happen uh, because I think recency bias changes everything and, and, and the world has changed. As far as me, the only, I, listen, Mark, I get into the Hall of Fame. I get a, I still get an NHL discount. I can get in for 850 and <laughs> yeah. I'm happy with that. John, thanks again for your time today and talking to us about the Detroit Red Wings, the great teams, the great players, great announcers as well. Again, your book is called Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life, published by Simon & Schuster. All the best all the time, John. Cheers. Our thanks again to John Shannon, the author of Evolve or Die, Hard-Won Lessons from a Hockey Life. Now let's hear from Andrew Kopp of the Red Wings, the free agent center, was asked the other day about the depth of scoring from defensemen on the team and how that creates offense in five-man units. The top defensive units have 42 points in 21 games, two points per game. Philip Ronick has 18 points, third on the team. Marit Sider has 11 points. Oli Mata has seven. Ben Sherratt has seven. Here's what Cop had to say about his new teammates. They're all moving the puck really well. I mean, um... You know, up and down. I mean, Ole has been really good. I like. I mean, you can you could say it's pretty much about all six of them right now. I think Wally and Australia have played really, really well together. They're moving the puck. They're skating. Um, uh, obviously, Mo and Benny are, are, have been really solid back there too. So it's uh, all six of them have been really solid. What does that do for the, the forwards when you can get that great? Kind of great, yeah, yeah. You don't well, and like just like I mean, it's a five. Like it takes five guys to score goals. You know, this is a, this is a hard league, and um, you know, especially. You know, sometimes you get, uh, you know, a pair that may not be as offensively inclined, but between the three pairs we have right now, uh, they're all moving the puck well. They're all, you know, they're all jumping in at the right times. They're jumping in on the rush. So it's been, it's been really good. Ted, what do you make of the team's defensemen after one quarter, especially the top two units? Cider is a team worst minus 10 and Sherratt is minus nine. Earlier this week, for example, Cider had a goal and an assist, but with a one-goal lead, 10 minutes into the game, no shots against Huso, Cider got caught up ice, and Matthew scored on a three-on-one. As for the second pairing, Ronick is a team best plus 10, and Mata is plus seven. Derek Lalonde said Cider and Sherratt played against the top lines for the first 13 to 15 games or so, but now he's switching that too. Meanwhile, Jake Wallman's at plus five. Jordan Osterley is plus eight. They played well of late. Robert Hag is minus six. Gustav Lindstrom minus five have been injured and are coming back and have played well. So what do you make of the team's defensive pairings, Ted, especially those top two? I've been really impressed with Mata and Ronick. I mean, you can make an argument that Ronick 
one of the best, most valuable players on the team this season. He's been it's been really eye opening the way he's played. It's more like when he came into the league and showed splashes of that potential. I mean, offensively, it's really been a revelation a little bit. Uh, Sherrod and Cider, that is an interesting point, Mark. It seems like they've definitely had moments where mm-hmm. you see where they could definitely be a really solid number one pairing, but there have been some missteps along the way, too. I think we've talked about Cider earlier this season. It seems like there's still some sort of an adjustment, adjustment period or whatnot, maybe to the coaching staff, the scheme or whatnot, but it hasn't been as overly smooth as it was last season uh but he's still I, I still you know he's mo cider i mean there's a lot of talent there mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of talent and a lot of good play going forward that third pairing i think it's i wouldn't be surprised if he mixes it up here relatively soon and gets hag and lindstrom back in there wallman and osley have been fine but i don't think there's much to separate those four actually i think you can all four of them about about at the same level. Uh, but no, I mean, if Mata and Ronak have been the most consistent one, um, they bring a lot to the table. I think Mata has been a nice addition. I wouldn't be mm-hmm. surprised somewhere along the line. I mean, they may bring him back for another season or two. I think he's been a nice revelation in his own right, too. And finally, Ted, to wrap up the podcast, let's hear from Jonathan Berggren. He got called up from Grand Rapids with injuries to Tyler Bertuzzi and Elmer Solderblom. And he's got six points in nine games. He scored last night. He's plus three, six blocks, four hits. When asked last week how he's doing in the NHL for the first time, he said he's living his dream. Yeah, I'm feeling comfortable. It's like hockey. I, I play there, play hockey for all my life. So I just... Uh, take every game like like a normal game so uh, and so far it's been good the boys have been nice to me and uh, the fans are incredible so uh, i'm living my dream right now ted what do you make of jonathan bergeron's progression he was the second pick in the second round that was a ken holland draft in the first round he took philip zedina instead of quinn hughes and then they went with joe valeno at number 30 and bergeron at number 33 bergeron's done well in the minors last year 64 points and 70 games with the Griffins. He's played on a line with Joe Valeno and Pew Suter of late. You asked Derek Lalonde about that this week. That line hasn't been getting as much ice time. Do you see a future, though, for this Ken Holland draft pick? Oh, I do, Mark. I think I don't know what your opinion is, but I really, mm-hmm. I've, in limited time, I've been impressed. He knows what to do with the puck. He scored a nice goal last night. Now, also, he made a misplay defensively on that shorthanded goal that Buffalo scored. He had his fingerprints over that one. But I, I have to be honest, my friend, how do you send him down? And mm-hmm. I think most people would rather have him than Zadina at this point. I mean, there's more promise there. We were talking about it recently. It's like, wow. How do you fit Zadina into this lineup at this point? I don't see where there's an opening when he does return. That's going to be another month or two, I guess, but I'm sure injuries will pop up. But uh, Bergwin has been impressive. I think yeah, there's some potent, there's some nice nice things to uh, watch there. And actually Soderblom, too. You know, he's been gone for several weeks. And how do you refit him back in there? Who do you take out? Uh, mm-hmm. It's that's a that's a nice quite. 
it's rarely over the last several years that this team had that sort of problem. <laughs> so it's actually a good problem to have. But no, back to your original point, Mark. Uh, I think I think most people have been impressed with Berger, and it'd be mm-hmm. kind of if you had to, if you had to send him back, uh, that'd be a tough call at this point. And that'll do it for episode 80 of our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. Thanks again for your time today, Ted. You can find all of Ted's stories online at DetroitNews.com, as well as on our Octopulse Facebook page. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, rating, and reviewing these podcasts. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.